Thank you, Father, that we are all gathered here today again in your hands, in your word. I thank you, Father, for the men and women who volunteer and help us keep this ministry going and do their part, both uh, in the service they perform, but also, Father, in their attendance, for though they may be coming for their own purposes, just to hear and know your word, which is reason enough. Nevertheless, Father, they form a team with, with uh, those who, who serve and even with those who listen. And uh, in our unity, Father, we're able to accomplish all that you intend through your word, both in us and by us for the sake of others. And that is a blessing, Father, to serve you. Thank you for the, the world that awaits your word. Thank you that you count us worthy to serve with you in some sense and, and to work to uh, meet the needs of others in the way we teach or share what we know. It's such an honor, Father, to work with the Creator, the living God, who needs nothing and has all things. But nevertheless, Father, you give us opportunity. And what a rich display of your love, Father, that you have made that available to us. Father, we ask that the word today would be clear. I ask, Father, that it would be convicting if necessary, but reassuring as well, that your control, that these things are under your hand. We ask, Father, that as we may confront similar circumstances, as was the case for Timothy in Ephesus, that we'd have the courage to speak in the way that Paul commanded that Timothy would speak and that we would have patience with those who might disagree. And we pray most of all, Father, that uh, what we learn today would grow our own walk with you so that we would counsel our own spirit and we would correct our own mistakes so that we may please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're learning from Paul as Paul instructs a young man on how to teach and on how to lead and how to defend the growing church that he leads in the pagan city of Ephesus. And last week, Paul commanded Timothy to contend with false teachers. That was really the heart of the first chapter. And as you're going to see today, it serves as a backbone for the entire book of First Timothy. This contending with false teachers who were disturbing the church with their false teaching. In chapter 1, we began to get a sense of who they were and what they were doing. They were teaching the law in wrong ways. They were taking a law that God intended to convict and to expose the evil that's in the unbelieving hearts of men. And instead, they began to impose it upon the believer as if they needed to accomplish this law rather than being saved by grace. They had strayed, Paul says, from instruction that was born out of a pure heart and out of a good conscience and a sincere faith. And instead, they had gone into doing these wrong things. When Paul says they strayed from those things, he was really inferring that they had strayed from his own teaching, which had come out of those good things. And they had gone on to do different teaching. So instead of listening to Paul and repeating what Paul said, they turned aside and into strange myths, Paul said, and into effectively empty talk, as we might translate it. You could say that the false teachers in Ephesus were the original ear ticklers of their day. They filled the gathering with flowery and perhaps fiery speech, but it lacked weight. It lacked substance because it wasn't in keeping with God's truth that Paul revealed to the church. So like all false teaching, it entertained the flesh, but it profited the soul nothing. So what we heard last week from Paul to Timothy was silence these men because the church simply cannot tolerate teaching that distorts or that obscures the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know how Timothy went about obeying Paul's instructions. We're not sure exactly what he would have done in light of what Paul told him to do. And if some of these guys that were teaching wrongly were elders in that church, then I think it's fair to assume that Timothy would have had a little bit of a fight on his hands as he went about silencing them. And add to that situation 
the fact that we know Timothy was a young man. That comes up later in Paul's letters. And if you put all that together, you can see how Paul's request might have led to some delicate situations, difficult confrontations. Nevertheless, Paul seems to be confident that Timothy was up to this job. And moreover, he obviously feels that confrontation is necessary. So in the next part of the letter, you're going to learn Paul's motivation for why he gave the instructions to Timothy to contend with these elders. And we pick up there in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hamanias and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul says he commanded Timothy in accordance with previously made prophecies. What he's referring to is that Paul, at a time earlier in their relationship, had heard a prophetic word from God about this young man. That word was that Timothy was going to be gifted, if not already gifted, by the Spirit to serve as a pastor. This would have come early in their relationship, far before Timothy himself ever saw it coming. And probably while Timothy was such a young man that no one else would have assumed he had that in him. You see indications of this moment elsewhere in two of Paul's letters that he wrote to this young man. Later in 1 Timothy, in chapter 4, we're going to read this. Verse 14, he says to Timothy, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And in the second letter to Timothy, we hear this in 2 Timothy 1.6. Paul says, For this reason I remind you, speaking to Timothy again, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So there must have been some moment, obviously, when the Lord moved Paul and the presbytery, that's just a word for gray-haired men, literally in Greek, it's referring to the elders. So the elders and Paul must have been moved by the Holy Spirit at some point to lay hands on Timothy, and in doing that, confirm his calling from God as a pastor. Laying on hands is the biblical way in which one group of men may confirm a calling from God upon another man. The Spirit gifts all believers with spiritual gifts. We all have some spiritual gifts or gifts from the moment we're called into salvation. But certain gifts, certain gifts that relate to leadership or authority in the church, have greater priority in the body of Christ because they hold unique potential to equip the body for the work of the ministry of the church and for the sake of individual godliness. Those individuals are not more important to the body of Christ, that they have higher standing in any sense spiritually, but they're more important in their function, in how they help us. And one of those special gifts is the pastoral gift. A pastoral gift is like any other spiritual gift in that it comes from the Spirit of God as God appoints. You can't earn it. You can't appeal for it. You can't go out and obtain it on your own. But it differs from other gifts in that it must be confirmed by other leaders in the church through a laying on of hands. And we're going to discuss laying on of hands later in greater detail when we come to the passages I just quoted. But for now, the point this evening is that true pastoral leadership cannot be gained merely by holding that position in the church. It can't be gained by a diploma or a degree or a certificate. It comes because the Lord appoints it and... It comes in conjunction with the Lord moving among the hearts of other men in leadership to confirm it through a laying on of hands. Because it carries responsibility for shepherding the flock, it must be confirmed 
by others who lead the flock. Otherwise, any usurper could step up and claim such authority. Men moved by the Spirit who see the calling of God on an individual and feel the Lord leading them to confirm it publicly will validate that individual's calling into pastoral leadership by laying on of hands. And Paul says, the Lord is pleased when this is done. This isn't a movement or a decision of men. This is a work of God through men. In my own experience, I had such a moment years ago. I was attending a church here in San Antonio. In some respects, I think of myself a little bit like Timothy. I had no prospects of pastoral ministry, no interest in it, no reason to think I'd have any reason to go into it. I mean, it was not on my mind. No more than becoming an astronaut. It just wasn't in the back of my mind. And I was attending a church in San Antonio, and I was participating in a small group of men who were leaders and teachers in the church. And I had only been a Christian at that point for a few years in my walk. And I was still very early in my Christian growth. And yet, even at that early time, I was feeling stirred by the Lord to serve as a teacher, and perhaps more, although I had, again, had no specific idea. And one night I was in this group, and we were sharing and praying in that group, and suddenly, following our prayer time, one of the men in the group just made eye contact with me, and he looked at me and he said he felt the Lord telling him that this group of men should lay hands on me. I said nothing, because I really didn't know what to say at that point. I hadn't really heard of this before. Again, I hadn't really studied any of this. But the group responded. They quickly gathered around me. I kneeled on the floor. They prayed for the Lord to equip me to teach and to lead the church. They laid hands on me. I had no idea the moment was coming. I didn't know really what to make of it. But I knew in my spirit, even as it was happening, that this was God doing something and I had to obey whatever was coming next. I didn't magically step up from that point and get a robe and a, and a collar. And, you know, it's not like that. It took many more years of God developing in me what he asked me to do. And it's still very much a, a work in progress. And I don't know if this experience is common to everyone called into pastoral experience, but it is my experience and it is consistent with what Scripture says should be the experience of anyone who is truly called in that role. And the Lord confirmed my spiritual gift to teach through that experience. I also believe he set me on a path to pastor. And that demonstrates God moving through others before the person themselves may even realize he's preparing them for that role. Keep in mind, every spiritual gift has value in the body of Christ. But the Lord moves in this unique way when bestowing gifts that carry spiritual authority. Having spiritual authority, though, brings responsibility. And one of those responsibilities is to be willing to engage in confrontations when necessary for the benefit of God's people. A spiritual leader, whether they're a pastor or teacher, and in many ways those are inseparable, that person cannot hesitate to address dangers that threaten God's people because it's part of the job. Confronting danger is the unique responsibility of an under-shepherd. What would you think about a shepherd in the field who's watching sheep if he ran away or stood idly by every time a wolf came by to take one of the sheep and eat it? He would be condemned as worthless, uh, as unfaithful in his role as a shepherd. So likewise, Paul tells Timothy that he has to be willing to act in keeping with the prophetic declaration that had already been spoken upon him that he would be a pastor. And so the Lord said Timothy would pastor... Therefore, Timothy must pastor. And pastors have to fight wolves from time to time. Paul says it's a good fight, though. The Greek word for good here also means beautiful or wise. It's the wise thing to do. When godliness battles ungodliness, it's a beautiful thing. When truth defeats lies, it's a beautiful thing. It's no less a fight just because our side is honorable or our purpose is good or wise. In fact, It needs to be a fight all the more because it's so important. The enemy, by the way, doesn't feel the same way about confrontations. The enemy doesn't avoid confrontation. He doesn't mind hurt feelings. He doesn't feel any compunction about inciting disagreement. And therefore, neither can a shepherd be afraid of these things in pursuit of what's good 
and wise for God's people. Paul tells Timothy in verse 19 that he must hold the line in Ephesus, remaining at his post, willing to confront teachers that are false, and to do it, he says, as a matter of personal faith and conscience. Simply put, Timothy had his own testimony to worry about here. If you do find pastors who are worried about confrontation, they ought to remember that the alternative is far more dangerous for them. A man truly called by God to serve in this way cannot throw up his hands and claim that he's not cut out for it or that he doesn't want to disturb or upset anybody. One day he'll answer for that in front of the Lord who called him. If the Spirit has moved and others have laid on hands to confirm the Spirit's choice, then that person already is on notice that the Lord has prepared him to do the work of a shepherd. Like when Moses said to God that he couldn't perform the role God was giving him because his mouth was not cut out for the job. He wasn't good at public speaking. What did God say? Who made your mouth? So whom God calls, God equips. So then without excuse, pastors who are called by God must either obey that calling or disobey that calling. There is no in-between. Paul tells Timothy, you'd better stay the course in Ephesus and you better stop thinking about taking road trips with me because your own conscience and your own faithfulness to this calling God has put on you is on the line here. To abandon the post that God gave Timothy or to avoid confronting the false teachers was disobedience to the call of a pastor. Which means Timothy's letter, which we don't have, but the one he must have written to Paul asking if he could join Paul that prompted this response that we're reading, that letter was effectively asking Paul if he could disobey his calling as a pastor. I'm sure he didn't think of it in that way. But Paul's answer to him is certainly raising that concern. Regrettably, I think many men in pastoral ministry have made this decision from time to time, have made the decision Timothy was seeking for. They receive a calling, they step into a role, but when the going gets tough, and pretty much you know that the going is going to be tough if you're a pastor, if you have anyone in the church, because that's all it takes right there for your church to have rough going, just people. And if a guy in ministry finds himself in a role that he doesn't like, and it's tough, and it's hard going, and things aren't working out right, and they look for the nearest exit... In their conscience, the Spirit is going to be telling them to stay and serve the Lord. And they're not listening because they're not interested in the work. And their faith is shaken, their testimony suffers, and they abandon their post. And I'm no one's judge. I'm not to say who should stay where or what they should do. I'm talking about in the general case of someone who is disobeying the call because of personal preferences. And that happens. Paul mentions a couple of examples of it himself here in the letter to Timothy. He talks about these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander who would appear have been teachers or even pastors perhaps in Ephesus. That's why he uses them as his example. And he says, these men rejected their conscience. You see that? And they rejected their own faith. And as a result, they suffered what Paul calls shipwrecked faith. Now, Paul's words here are, are uncharacteristically hard. Not that he's, he's never prone to say these sorts of things, but it's just not his typical form. He's typically a little more uh, indirect. And, and therefore, we have to look at this closely, that he would speak so forcefully and name two people, which is very rare for Paul. How would you like to have your name memorialized in Scripture, except it's memorialized in the negative way, right? That's got good news and I've got bad news for you, Fred. Your name's going to be in the Bible. <laughs> All right, so his words are uncharacteristically hard. And I think that tells us how seriously Paul felt about leaders who abandon their posts or who promulgate false teaching. Paul says to do so is to reject the conscience. Someone once described the conscience as the heart's capacity to direct us into righteousness or to feel conviction over sin. So that would mean to reject consciousness would mean to overrule the leading of your heart 
and then to suppress the guilty feelings that result from your sin. In short, these men knew better, but they chose to do wrong anyway. And secondly, it says they rejected their faith. Obviously, you can't reject something you don't first possess. So these men had faith, but they rejected it, or the Greek word there could be translated pushed back against. They pushed back against their faith. Rather than to do what their faith expected, they acted contrary to their faith. And as a result, they experienced shipwrecked faith. Here again, they have a faith. It's just that word in front of it that concerns us, right? It's shipwrecked. Faith, you could say, is the name of the ship sailing the seas. We are placed in that ship of faith by God's grace. And so we are in faith, in Christ. And we go about our way into the world, sailing the seas of the world in faith. And in that journey, if you will, you have to steer clear of things. You've got to steer clear of temptations. You've got to avoid the schemes of the enemy. You've got to guard against your own flesh and against the world that wants to pull you down. And along the way, you're going to find dangerous reefs. Some of them are visible. Some of them are hidden. These are the temptations and schemes and the like. Now, if you act carelessly or recklessly with regard to your faith, you may experience shipwreck. That is to say, you run aground against these threats, which means your progress stops. If the wreck is serious enough, it may prevent the ship from ever becoming seaworthy again. You may just stay right there the rest of your walk. But notice the ship is still there. That is, faith has not departed. You're just aground. You're just going nowhere. More than that, a ship that's run aground on rocks stands as a testimony to other passing ships to avoid that very same danger. So these men, in effect, become examples to other believers not to follow them. Here again, you're going to be an example for God. A bad example for God. That's a possibility in the life of a believer. We call it shipwrecked faith. And that's exactly Paul's comment to Timothy. He says, don't be like these men. They hit the rocks. And then because of their bad influence on the church, Paul goes on to say that he handed them over to Satan. That is, by this act of discipline, Paul was going to ensure that they learned not to blaspheme. As you try to understand what Paul's talking about here, let's start with what they did wrong. They blasphemed. We know from the earlier chapter that the false teachers here in Ephesus were misusing the law of Moses, the law of God. They were likely teaching the believers in Ephesus had to continue to keep the law. Perhaps they were teaching Gentiles they had to become Jewish in a sense before they could then be Christian. That's a Judaizer teaching. And we have to assume then they were probably teaching all kinds of other errors too. Why would we assume they only got one thing wrong? Collectively, Paul says, it was blasphemy. Blasphemy is any speaking of sacred things in contempt or absent the reverence they deserve. We don't use that word much now today, do we? Our grandparents used to use it a lot. We don't use it very much, it seems. It's not common in the church anymore. Sounds very Old Testamenty. Is that a word? It is now. But it can still happen today. It covers a wide spectrum from false representations of the Godhead, denying the Trinity would be blasphemy, for example, claiming that Jesus was not God but merely a prophet as the Jehovah's Witnesses do, for example, that would be blasphemy. It's any false representation of the Godhead or of his word, the prosperity gospel, that's blasphemy, or of his actions, speaking of God's actions in some way that's not reverential. Many ungodly comedians today will make fun of Christianity or Jesus in some flippant way. That's blasphemy to misrepresent the the creator of the universe in such trivial ways. Somehow then, these men in Ephesus crossed the line in their teaching and moved into a space of blasphemy in some form. Many times people in the church, and I'm going to include some pastors in this, 
open their mouths and speak irreverently about sacred things without even realizing they're doing it. And that's blasphemy. As a believer, you're forgiven for it, as you are for all your sin, but it certainly doesn't excuse it. And it doesn't mean there aren't consequences in other ways. When these men did these things, when they committed blasphemy, Paul says, he handed them over to Satan. Now that's one of two occasions in the New Testament when Paul describes this unique form of punishment. The other case is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he speaks of a man who was engaged in an incestual relationship with his stepmother. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, at the end of that, discussing this man's situation, Paul says this, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Clearly talking about a believer again. Notice, though, between what we've read here and what we read in 1 Corinthians, notice that the outcomes are different between these two situations. In the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, the goal, Paul said, was to teach them not to blaspheme. But in the case of the man in Corinth, Satan was going to be permitted to end the man's physical life to the benefit of his soul on Judgment Day. Presumably then dying sooner, in the case of the guy in Corinth, reduced his opportunity to sin longer and thus preserved him from even greater loss at the judgment seat. That's what it appears to be saying. Because when you talk about the preserving of the soul here, his soul is already saved by faith, so there's only one other thing to be discussing in terms of preservation. That would be eternal reward. Isn't that a sobering thought? That, that in some cases a believer can be in such a state of sin that it's better that God would let them physically die sooner than later rather than give them more chance to pile up sin? But in the case of the two men in Ephesus, the goal was to teach them not to blaspheme. Now, in both cases, God's instrument to execute the discipline here was Satan and his army. Uh, Paul uses Satan's name. It could be literally Satan was employed in these cases, but Satan is created. That means he can only be in one place at one time. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. But he has an army of demons that work with him and do his bidding. So Paul could also have just meant Satan in the sense of Satan, Inc. The whole of them. In any case, this is proof that God may use Everything in his creation, including the enemy, to discipline his children. Presumably he saves that particular kind of discipline for the worst cases, but the fact that it's available to him is just sober warning in itself. So in extreme cases, the Lord may turn a child of God over to Satan for harsh treatment, which ultimately will come to some good for that individual. Such treatment will either teach a rebellious believer to repent and then return to a faithful walk, like the men in Ephesus, it might appear, or, as we said, he may cut a rebellious life short just to stop the spiritual bleeding. Either way, that person's life serves as a warning sign to other believers. So with that sober reminder, Paul moves on in his letter to give Timothy specific instructions on how to continue the fight and how to serve the people of Ephesus. I'll read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So this chapter switch here is a bit abrupt, or so it would seem, when in reality it's a continuation of the conversation that Paul's engaged in with Timothy, dealing with the false teachers. 
This chapter finds Paul moving away from exhorting Timothy to stay the course and remain in the job and fight the good fight. And now, from chapter 2 all the way through to the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is now going to instruct Timothy on very specific things that he wants Timothy to start doing or teaching within the church, countering false teaching that was coming from these other men. So every instruction that's being given is directly intended to counter something that had been taught by the false teachers. This is Paul's recipe to get the church healthy in the face of what these men had been doing in their false teaching. Together with his words to Titus, remember I mentioned there's three letters altogether that we typically call the pastoral letters. They're very similar in theme. This letter, 2 Timothy plus Titus, Together with his words in Titus and in 2 Timothy, Paul's teaching in this section from 2 to 4 is a manual for church life. Every church should attend to these words carefully because not only will they correct poor teaching if you happen to have any or poor practice, but they also protect the church from ever coming under the influence of such bad things because you'll have the, the right view right from the start. And look where Paul begins. Prayer? Actually, you're wrong. If you thought that, Paul's first priority for the church was reaching the world with the gospel. And successful evangelism begins with prayer. Because prayer is the most important service the body of Christ can offer to the Lord in support of those other missions. It's the only spiritual discipline, by the way, that you can practice under any circumstances and at all times. And it's the necessary predecessor to any other work of the body of Christ. And so here you're seeing Paul emphasize prayer at the outside of the chapter, but as it relates to the body's accomplishment of evangelism. And as it relates to evangelism, Paul commands that Timothy teach that prayers be made on behalf of all men. Paul uses four synonyms here to describe prayer. They are synonyms in the Greek. You could use them almost interchangeably. But when you put them all on the list like this, they do convey subtly different shades of meaning. Entreaties. Those are earnest, heartfelt appeals for personal need. While prayer is just the general Greek word for communicating with God. And petitions are requests you make on behalf of others. And then thanksgivings are just what the word suggests. So Paul wants Timothy to train his congregation to engage in prayer, all manner of prayer, for all men. Obviously, it's literally impossible for a church of any size to pray for every human being on earth. So therefore, we conclude logically that's not Paul's intention. He's not asking that any given body of believers pray literally for every living human being on earth. That would be the hyper-literal and unrealistic interpretation. And Paul makes clear to us in verse 2 that he never intended that because he clarifies in verse 2 what he means by the phrase, all men. Paul meant all kinds of men. That's what he meant, because he says the church is to pray for men in authority as one example. The church naturally prays for certain kinds of people. The church naturally prays for itself, for members of its congregation. You naturally pray for family and for friends. These are the people that are on your mind. That's where you go first, of course. Maybe for neighbors and co-workers, people you interact with. Maybe someone in the news. We have reasons why they're on our mind, which is why we lift them up in prayer. It makes perfect sense. But Paul says... I want the congregation, when it's praying about evangelism, to look beyond their immediate world. He wants the church to pray for, as an example, kings, or for those in authority in general. He wants the church body to seek for a worldwide movement of God up and down society, reaching even into the palace halls at every level of society. That meant, for example, in their case, praying for the Caesar, praying for the procurator of Judea, praying even for those enemies who were seeking to silence them and persecute them among the Jewish leadership. For many in the body, 
And again, you have to put yourself in their situation and in the day and the time in which they lived. For many in the body in Ephesus, such a request would have seemed repugnant. How can you pray to the Lord to save those who treated the church so poorly or stood in the way of the gospel? Certainly that's not the way the world thinks of prayer, by the way. Jews, in general, do not pray that God would extend mercy to their Gentile oppressors. Neither do Gentile pagans pray to their false gods for mercy for their enemies, whoever their enemies may be. It's just not the way the world thinks about prayer. Yet here was Paul asking the church to pray in all ways for the good of all men, including men in authority who were, in many cases, persecuting them. But the irony is, that practice can only serve to benefit the church, as Paul explains in the later part of verse 2. He says such prayer might allow the church to live a tranquil, a quiet life, a dignified life. He means it both practically and spiritually. First, practically speaking, this is just smart strategy for the church. If a church gained a reputation of offering prayers in support of the political leaders of the day, then those governing authorities are going to be a lot less likely to persecute that church, aren't they? Or to entertain any kind of accusation against them. They're trying to overthrow the government. I don't think so. I keep hearing that they're praying for me all the time. At the very least, the government would conclude the church is not a threat to their power, which was important in the day that Paul wrote this letter, if not now. Remember the Caesar? The Caesar at this time was Nero. And if you don't know the history of Nero, he was a man prone to rash thinking and to persecution, which he ultimately used to do much harm to the church, which is why Paul tells the church, be smart, pray for all men, not just for the personal friends that you know. But more importantly, there is a spiritual purpose in praying this way. You and I know that God is the one who moves hearts into faith in Christ. He's the author of our faith, uh, Hebrews writes. Then you also have to know he has the potential to bring salvation to anyone. No one's outside his reach if he chooses to move in their life, right? And therefore, you would have sound theological reason to pray for everyone who comes to mind or to pray for the most unlikely of people in government. You need to not filter who God is likely to save or who might be persuadable by the gospel. You're to pray indiscriminately in that respect for every type of man or woman in every walk of life, in every place, because they are all potentially savable if God chooses. How much better will life be for the church if some of their chief persecutors became chief evangelists? I wonder if anyone in the church, for example, was praying for Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul. As Saul was breathing threats against the church and he was persecuting believers even until death, were believers praying for his salvation? Hopefully so, because we see how Paul's conversion became a way to tranquility and dignity and godliness for the church. And so it can be in every generation according to God's word. The Lord desires to work through our prayers and to make things happen. Paul says this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Lord. It pleases the Lord when you and I choose to pray this way. It would seem it brings him more glory to have his intentions concerning a certain ruler be announced beforehand through our prayers so that when he does act, should he choose to do so, we have announced it to the world in advance. Which is why Paul reminds us in verse 4 that God has proven his desire to save all men by bringing them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, as you read Paul's words in verse 4, you have to remember that the phrase all men in verse 4 is the same as that of verse 1. Just as the Lord asked the church to pray for rich and poor, kings and peasants, all kinds of men, in other words, so too does the Lord intend to bring salvation to all kinds of men. He will save rich at times. He will save poor at times. He will save kings at times. He will save peasants at times. 
That verse does not mean, does not teach, that God has a desire for all humanity, all men in that sense, to receive salvation. That would not be a correct interpretation. And here's why. First, the context of the verse does not lead us to that conclusion, as I already explained, because you have to take all men to mean the same in both cases. Second, elsewhere in Scripture, we're taught that God saves some, but not all. Paul says himself in Romans 9, that God created some humanity for dishonorable use, as Paul describes it. And then finally, the Bible says that if God truly desires something, and Paul just said God desires this, the Bible says if God truly desires something, then it will always come to pass. Job 23.13, speaking of God, But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. Or Psalm 115.3, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep. Point being, Scripture says if God desires something, and Paul just said He desires something, then the Bible goes on to say it will come to pass. And yet we know not all human beings are saved. And therefore we must conclude God does not desire that all human beings would receive salvation. For if that was His desire, the Bible says He would get it. There's no such thing as God desiring something and yet not making it so. Rather, as the context indicates, Paul is saying that God desires for all kinds of men to receive salvation, which is our motivation for praying for all kinds of men, because we know he's inclined to act that way. It's important to remember that Paul's asking for the church to pray for leaders concerning their salvation. Well, we're certainly free to pray for our leaders in other ways. The scripture is not commanding us to pray for leaders in a general sense. Scripture commands us to submit to our leaders, but when it comes to praying for them, we are specifically commanded to pray for their salvation. Because frankly, nothing matters more anyway. There's a danger in overlooking that detail, because if we operate on the assumption that Paul was just asking for general prayer for leadership, that risks turning our prayer for our leaders into politically motivated lobbying. We stop caring about the leaders in any sincere sense, for their salvation that is, for their eternity. Because in reality, we're just praying for ourselves by asking God to direct certain political outcomes through these people that we're praying for. That's not what Paul's intending here. Pray for the president and pray for your senators and congressmen and all those others that you have on your mind. That's a worthwhile and honorable thing to do. Just make sure you're praying for the right thing for them. Then Paul offers up a final proof for his command, one that suggests even more what the false teachers in Ephesus were preaching. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is Paul's final proof for his command that the people of Ephesus ought to be praying for all kinds of men. And his proof is, he says, there's one God, the Father, and he has appointed one mediator between God and man, that is, Jesus Christ. So one God implies one plan of salvation, right? And one mediator means only one way to the Father. So Christ came as a man to bring salvation, which is the plan of the Father for all humanity, and then Christ returned to God to make possible our conversation as he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. His point is, if Christ is the one and only mediator to the Father, then 
There is not two plans for salvation. There are not two different ways in which God saves. There, there's not a plan for Jew versus a plan for Gentile. Or in any other division you might make, a plan for the poor versus a plan for the rich. Our prayer should encompass all of them with the intent that God has the potential to save from among any of them. That should be our intent. As easy as it may be for us to accept this teaching today, particularly in the 20th century, 21st century, after all the teaching that's happened since Paul's day, it's then hard to remember that in Paul's day, it was not so easy for people to accept that Christ was the one and only mediator. It's been a stumbling block for people for for millennia. The Jews prayed to Moses or to angels for intercession, which, by the way, explains why the opening chapters of the book of Hebrews are dealing with showing Christ as greater than Moses or greater than angels. Roman Catholics, they seek intercession by praying to Mary or to dead Catholics they call saints. Buddhists and Taoists pray to ancestors to intercede. Pagans pray to various intermediaries. But the Word of God says there's only one. Only one way to the Father. Only one who invites us into a conversation with the Father. Only one who intercedes. Only one who can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is only one the world must seek. By that same token, anyone who is praying through Jesus to the Father will be heard. You see, if you flip that around and you say, well, if a king starts praying to Jesus, God's going to hear him too. Even if Nero, even if Hitler had, by God's miraculous power, come to faith in Jesus Christ, he still would have been granted entry into heaven by the blood of Christ. No person is excluded from the opportunity merely because of their walk of life or their past or their position. Moreover, he adds, Paul says, at the proper time in history, Jesus gave himself up as a ransom payment on the cross for all the sins of men. Again, here he's speaking here of all kinds of men. Jesus' death payment came at a certain proper time in history, but the fact that it came on a certain day doesn't mean it was only sufficient for those who happened to live before him or at some point within the time of his death. It's for all men at all time. Therefore, Paul's saying Jesus is the one for everyone. There's not plan A for Jew, plan B for Gentile, etc., That's why, Paul says, God appointed him. Notice the irony. God appointed an eminent Jew to serve as an apostle to Gentiles. It would have been a far different thing had God sent Jewish apostles to Jewish people, Samaritan apostles to Samaritan people, and Gentile apostles to Gentile people. We would have three different churches on earth right now if he had done that. But he sends one group to the other, always from the Jewish point of view. Salvation is of the Jews. But still, he sends them everywhere so that we don't have that distinction implied by how we've heard the message. By the way, Paul's mention of his mission to the Gentiles, that would seem to indicate that the false teachers in Ephesus were attempting to drive a wedge between Jew and Gentile again. By the law, probably. Reading between the lines is going to be an important skill on our part as we continue through all of Paul's teaching in this chapter and beyond. Because we're going to come now to several topics today and next week that are very controversial, even still today. And they're often, if not always, taken out of the context of this letter and viewed in isolation, forgetting that they were being taught to counter false teaching that was trying to drive wrong behavior within the church in that day. Not to say it's still not timely or contemporary, but I'm saying you have to understand its source, it's the center from which Paul is coming if you're really to get the sense of what he's saying. So it appears these men were teaching improper roles for men and for women, and in doing so they were stirring up dissension and contention, confusion, And so Paul now spends time correcting the the record and reestablishing proper order within the body. And he begins with men. 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. His comment about prayer in verse 8 sounds an awful lot like he's just repeating 
his comments that he made earlier in this chapter, right? Almost like he's just summarizing his point. But if you look closely, you'll see Paul is talking about something different. Earlier, his concern was the content of the prayer. That the church would pray on behalf of all kinds of men, not just for some they knew or whatever. Now, look, Paul's speaking about the demeanor of the men in prayer. They must pray in every place. They must pray lifting up holy hands. They must pray without wrath or dissension. And therefore, we can logically assume these instructions were intended to counter the bad behavior of the false teachers who were instructing contrary things. For example, first, it appears the men in the church are being discouraged from praying. Perhaps they were being discouraged from public prayer, maybe out of a fear of persecution. Or more likely, they may have been taught by those false teachers that they could only pray in synagogues, which would have been the Jewish style, or under supervision of rabbis in certain ways that rabbis required, which again would have been very common. Whatever the teaching was, Paul counters this by saying to the church that he calls for men in the church to lead the entire body in public prayer, and he says, in every place. That is to say, the church was intended to be visible in its worship and in its prayer life. As Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a blanket. The Lord lit the lamp of the hearts of the believers in Ephesus, and he doesn't want them to to stay in the shadows. So he expects it to be on display. Secondly, Paul wants these men to be praying in an exuberant way, hands held and so on. That would have been the traditional Jewish way. And yet doing it with holy hands, which seems to be a subtle dig at the unholy hands of the false teachers. So we're starting to get a better picture of these men. We have to imagine that the false teachers in Paul's day were a lot like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Those are men who love to receive the praises of men, so they would have often planned their religious activities so as to be seen by a lot of people out on the street corners in the busiest places of the day. They would have sought the praises of men, not the praises of God. And in conjunction with that, while they're doing all their stuff publicly, they simultaneously suppress any independent religious expressions apart from those they sanction. Think John the Baptist. John the Baptist gets going out in the, in the wilderness, and the Pharisees march right out and try to shut him down because he wasn't playing nice with their rules. It's characteristic of false teachers that they would not only bring in their own form of false piety, but they would shut down any other independent expressions of religious life that they don't control and manage, because that's their source of power. So I'm assuming, and it is an assumption, but I think reading between the lines again, the men in Ephesus that were false teachers could have been doing similar things, praying in public displays of piety, raising their unholy hands while suppressing the holy hands of everyone else who might have wanted to do their own religious expression. They were reintroducing pharisaical hypocrisy into the church. And Paul says he wanted it stopped. The key to the power of any false teacher is in the way they place themselves between people and God. Those under their spell will come to believe that they must come to that false teacher to get what they want from God. The essence of the prosperity gospel is this very idea. You want to be rich? Well, I know how God will make you rich. Send me your money. The secret then to neutralizing that kind of person is to remind the people who follow them that they can go directly to God. So Paul neutralizes these false teachers by telling the men in the church, I want you all to gather together anytime, anywhere, raise your holy hands in prayer, no rabbi required. In doing so, he says, I don't want any wrath, I don't want any dissension. That is, I want you to act in one mind as you conduct yourself. Silence the false teachers and then unite in truth to do what's required. 
This was the command to men. That is to say, the men are the spiritual leaders of the church, as God appoints. But that doesn't mean Paul is specifically excluding women from public prayer. He's simply emphasizing men bear this burden for the sake of the body overall. Men needed to act in this way so that they could lead the rest of the congregation to follow suit. That's a very important concept to keep in mind as we go deeper into Paul's letter. Men lead congregations, but churches follow in unity. Conversely, when men aren't engaged to lead, it's almost impossible to move the rest of the body anywhere. All right, now Paul turns to correcting distorted teaching on women's behavior in the church. Verse 9. Likewise, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Now I want you to notice in verse 9, Paul starts with likewise. In Greek, it's literally the word similarly. Similarly. Which indicates that these situations are related in some way. And on their surface, they wouldn't seem to be. They would seem to be quite different. The logical assumption then must be that the false teachers are the connection between the two. Again, the false teachers have been stirring up the women to assume improper roles within the body. And I should add, this is a favorite trick of the enemy. It's hardly new and it's hardly gone away. To distort and pervert the roles that God assigns to men and women is a favorite tactic. The enemy wants to distort the roles of husbands and wives. He wants to distort the sexual functions of men and women. And he wants to distort the roles of men and women in leadership in the church. So Paul instructs Timothy in direct contradiction to what must have been taught by the false teachers. He just ended in speaking about the demeanor of men and how they pray. And so it makes sense that he starts in the same place with women. He's instructing them on godly demeanor within their own context. Paul says women in the church must adorn themselves modestly and discreetly. The words modestly and discreetly are words they emphasize our effect on others. They're really speaking about other people as much as they are about us. When you are modest, you are diminishing others' attention of you. When you are discreet, you are concealing something of yourself from other people. Both words then imply an attitude of focusing on the needs of someone else over your own desires. Paul gives a few examples there of of what he says are not being modest or discreet. Braided hair, gold, pearls, costly garments. I don't think you need to read that list in some kind of super literal fashion so as to throw out all your gold. Though if you feel convicted, let me know. I would love to help you with that problem. It's in the sense of the use of these things, in the heart intent that followed from them, the excess, the point being that when someone has adorned themselves with these sorts of things to the degree that they're no longer being modest or that they're no longer being discreet. That's really the sense. Over the top, unnecessarily eye-catching. I read a quote that I didn't put in my notes, but it's on the top of my mind of a guy who said that he remembers walking into a, a large church. He said it happened to be in Dallas, but that was just happenstance, could have been anywhere, he said. And he was taken by how many people he saw walking in, dressed to the nines, gold and flashing jewelry everywhere, and all the heads craning around to see who was there and to take in the sight and to size everyone up. And he said it, it made it seem as though the only reason people were coming to church was for that whole game. The attitude shifts away from a concern for others and entirely to a concern for self. So don't take it so literally as that you have to have none of these things. Think of it more generally in the sense of how you use these things. Once again, based on Paul's instructions, we have to assume something about what false instruction might have been happening in the church that led him to have to make this correction. It seems the women were taking opportunity to display their wealth or their personal beauty, 
within the body of Christ. By the way, I should add at this point, this is not necessarily limited to women. But I also don't think it's sexist or unreasonable to make the conclusion that men have certain things they lean toward and women have certain things they lean toward. And showing off beauty or adorning yourself in a certain way tends to be the way women like to make themselves known and gain attention. Men find other ways, though that's not an exclusive separation, obviously. So in this case, it seems like women were doing that, taking opportunity to display their wealth or their beauty. They were apparently coming to the church gathering dressed like young ladies uh, for a night on the town. And it seems as though the more elaborate the display, the more important or honored they might have felt within the body, or more honored they were treated by others, perhaps, in the body of Christ. Even worse, it seems as though their reputation and their standing within the body would have turned to some degree on these superficial things. That would imply that they were sort of looking for their standing, their importance in the church, on the basis of wealth or beauty. Now, it would seem obvious to us that we shouldn't be thinking ourselves important in the church on the basis of such things. Why would any Christian imagine that their standing in the body is, is going to be on the basis of money or image? Have you ever encountered members of the church who expect special favors or privileges because they donate a lot of money? Or maybe a woman who expects praise for her beautiful singing voice or her fashion sense. And if there's a redecoration to happen in this church, I'm sure they better talk to me first. Or teenagers who wear revealing clothing with plunging necklines or tight jeans expecting to get noticed by their peers. In other words, are we really that different? The human heart hasn't changed, friends. It's not like we're suddenly better people than they were. It's the nature of the business that we all have pride. And so as a result, this is a constant need. The issue is not that this is unique to Paul's day. The issue was somehow the teachers in that day had made that acceptable or even encouraged it. So who should we hold up in the body as an example? As Paul says, we should be known for godliness, right? Rather than making a claim on the basis of wealth or beauty, they should make a claim based on godliness. So shouldn't it be the most godly among us who we celebrate as they walk in the door? Shouldn't our heads turn to look at the most godly? If if we're going to do it at all, those who love the most, those who pray the most, those who understand the most about God's word, those who seek only glory for Christ, shouldn't they be the ones that get our attention? This is Paul's point. And this is where you have to hear his words properly and not think them spoken from the wrong heart. Paul simply asking women to restrain themselves from seeking approval and attention in worldly ways. Men, by the way, do the same thing, that is, seeking attention in the wrong ways, but they typically do it differently. And men like to use piety, like Pharisees, to gain their attention. They want credit for being godly on the outside, while still being able to stay ugly on the inside. Women want credit for being beautiful on the outside instead of being godly on the inside. But it's really the same thing. The men just seek to be noticed in different ways than women do. That brings us to the final and, I guess, the most controversial part of Paul's advice. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Once again, we're watching Paul counter false teaching. He says, women must receive instruction quietly and with entire submissiveness. The Greek word translated submissiveness might also be translated whole obedience. And I actually think that's better. I think that's a better sense here uh, because it relates to the apparent problem that I think is going on in the church. It would seem, based on what he says here and later in the letter, that women were being encouraged to challenge and perhaps even ignore the teaching of men. Perhaps men like Timothy. It makes sense to assume that the false teachers wanted to maintain their power. 
So they would have worked to deflect criticism of those who would have come against them. So that meant they may have told the women that they have freedom to ignore the instructions of those other teachers, of those husbands or elders or pastors. When they tell you that I'm teaching you wrong things, just ignore them. You have liberty or something maybe like that. And then later in the letter, we're going to see that women were being led astray by these false teachers into gossip and idleness and going from house to house and being deceived. There's this whole culture being built up of rebellious thinking and behavior built on top of teachers who saw that kind of disruption as a way of maintaining their power base. It's a matter, you notice here at the end, of self-restraint in verse 15. This is an issue of staying within the lines in the midst of teachers who were trying to blur those lines. So Paul commands that women would cease challenging men who taught. They were to receive the teaching of men quietly. Now it's hard to believe, but it seems women had become bold enough to interrupt or to challenge male teachers in this context. And I actually am not saying that facetiously, though it does sound kind of funny, doesn't it? It would have been hard to believe in that day and age, is my point. And this is shocking, but it's probably not shocking for the reasons you would assume today. Today we're shocked to read someone telling a woman to be quiet. Well, I mean, seriously, in political terms, no one does this anymore. You can't tell a woman to be quiet just because she's a woman. Who would dare do that? But in Paul's day, it's not shocking for that reason. It's shocking for two other reasons. First, it was shocking to hear a male authority like Paul advocating for women to be included in the classroom. In Paul's day, the Jews rarely permitted women to attend Torah instruction. Learning the law was exclusively for men. So women were never present in any serious teaching moment around the law, around the word of God. So they couldn't have been there to challenge male teachers in the first place. They were at home and their husbands taught them. But instead of kicking women out of the meeting, even in the case of all of this disruption, Paul simply asked them to remain respectfully quiet without challenging the teaching. That was a shocking women's lib opportunity for the early church. I mean, and justifiably so. God intended for women to be there. I'm not saying that this is some special privilege. I'm simply saying that from a cultural point of view, we flipped it on its head, forgetting how much the church is opening the opportunities that God wanted for his people to hear him. The second reason this is shocking is it was shocking to hear that a woman in Paul's day would have even dared to challenge men in this way, as I mentioned a minute ago. And therefore, it's a sign of just how far the false teachers had succeeded in disrupting the church culture so that women actually felt comfortable taking this kind of step. So Paul steps in, he has to correct it, and so he should for the sake of good order in the church. So in the congregational meeting, it's not the time or place for a woman to express concern over a man's teaching. We're not talking here about in all circumstances. Paul is very narrow here. And you know that because he keeps talking about women being quiet. That implies a congregational setting. It implies a male teacher with a group of people. Then he says he doesn't want a woman to teach nor exercise authority over a man, but remain quiet. You see the context continuing here. A classroom or some other setting where teaching is taking place and there's a male teacher. In that audience, then, there are men and women, or maybe only women. And in that setting, Paul's speaking about a woman who might challenge the male teacher's authority. Women in that congregational meeting who might seek to teach from a place in the audience. Do you see this? How can we say a woman cannot teach but has to remain quiet? That would mean a woman could never teach. And that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that in the context in which there's a group setting and they're not the appointed teacher, they can't stand up and start to teach a man from their seated position in the congregation. It was customary to ask questions of the teacher or to raise new points of teaching from the audience. But a woman was not to do that in keeping with Paul's point earlier that a woman should remain silent. And in conjunction with not teaching, Paul asked a woman not to exercise authority over men. But here again, 
This is in the context of that classroom moment where the woman is in the audience. The Greek word translated authority, in fact, is not the common word for authority that you normally find in the New Testament. It's a different word, a unique word, that carries the connotation of usurping or misappropriating authority or domineering over a proper authority. Paul is saying that a classroom with a male teacher is not the time or place for a woman to take charge and to try to teach. To, in a sense, usurp the authority, draw attention to herself, and say, I've got a better idea of what this guy's teaching. And you can think a little of what might have stirred that up. Imagine a group of false teachers conspiring behind the scenes to enlist the support of people in the room so that when their views were being countered by the teaching of the men at the front of the room, they had their stooges placed in the room ready to object and to say, that's not true and we disagree and we have a different view. But maybe they had trouble recruiting men, but they found it easier, for some reason, to recruit the women. And as a result, they had these women ready to stand up and challenge the authority of the men and challenge the teaching in the room, and in that case, defend themselves against the claims that they were false teachers. All this does raise a question of how far we're supposed to go with the application of Paul's instructions, but how far can we go in what women are allowed to do in teaching or in exercising authority. But before you can address that question, you have to look at Paul's proof, which he takes from Genesis of Adam and woman, because it's from that proof that Paul has his basis for making any of his claims. And we will do that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the instruction of Paul to Timothy and to Ephesus, for the reminder that there is good order intended in your body, Father, and that it serves the best purpose of guiding us into godliness and of letting our leaders lead us properly. Help us, Father, to remember to pray for all kinds of men and that we would pray specifically for the salvation of those who lead us. For, Father, what a glorious thing it would be if those who lead us, even at the highest levels, could come to sincere faith in you, even as they lead. What a great testimony, Father. It would be like another version of Saul on the road to Tarsus, or the road to Damascus. Father, help us remember that. Help us, Father, as well, to, um, to submit and respect those you appointed over us in leadership. For, Father, they guard over, guard over our souls, you tell us. And it would not be profitable for us to make their lives difficult, Father, for they work for our benefit. Help us to know that and remember that as well. Thank you for those leaders. And Father, thank you for the men and women who teach, for the guidance you've offered through their expertise as they endeavor to learn your word and as you guide them. Father, help us to remember that they are worthy of double honor so that they might be encouraged to continue in that difficult work. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.